today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. OPP Interim Commissioner Bill Blair has called upon the province's ombudsman to investigate questions of interference when it came to the appointment of Ron Taverner. He is the new, or will be, uh, was supposed to be, or scheduled to be, the new OPP commissioner. Here's what uh, the Premier Doug Ford had to say about all of this way back when, when he was questioned about transparency. It was unanimous, unanimous decision. And I told them very clearly, I don't want anything to do with this whatsoever. But this, this is a man that has given 50 years of his life to policing. All right. Uh, and now, of course, uh, Brad Blair, the, uh, the interim police uh, OPP commissioner, is questioning what is going on. Let's bring in Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Are you surprised this is still has legs? Oh, no, not at all. This is a very, very serious situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be serious if it was the cabinet and premier's role being questioned in terms of appointment of any law enforcement officer, including a judge, uh, based on how the appointment process went. Uh, but choosing the top cop in the province, this goes right to the heart of one of the key issues in terms of whether we have a democracy or not, which is uh, something called the rule of law, and that is whether laws will be enforced based on evidence and the rules or based on politics. And if you have the premier involved in choosing the top cop of the province and intervening to make sure a close friend of his gets the job, then you're talking about a situation where uh, there's reason for everyone to believe that uh, the law will then be enforced based on politics, not based on actually the law and evidence. Uh, the Premier said that uh, this was a unanimous decision by those uh, that were making the decision. Why are we questioning this? What, what's leading, what's raising the red flags for Doug Ford? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Doug Ford was at the cabinet meeting that approved it, and uh, Democracy Watch's position is that's a violation of the provincial uh, government ethics law alone because you're not allowed to take part in any decision where you could further your own interest or improperly further another person's interest and of course it's improper to be at a meeting where you're handing a close friend of yours a job Uh, but what would only worsen the violation is if he or someone acting on his behalf was involved in any other step in the process and uh, the biggest question is uh, that the job description was changed and the qualifications for the job were changed two days after the job was posted. And the excuse being offered is that they wanted to broaden the pool of applicants, but two days after a job is posted, you wouldn't know how many applicants you have. Most jobs are posted for 30 to 60 days, and if they didn't have enough applicants after 30 to 60 days, then then maybe it would be justifiable to change and lower the qualifications. Uh, But to do it two days after, and specifically to do it in a way that would make Doug Ford's close friend qualified for the job raises a lot of questions about who uh, who actually made that decision and who, and who might have tried to influence it. Uh, uh, the interim commissioner, Brad Blair, ha- has made this uh, request of the ombudsman. Uh, he was referred to as a top candidate for this job. Uh, could this be viewed as sour grapes? Uh, yes, and despite the fact that it is coming from another applicant, there is some useful information in this complaint and that needs to be investigated to determine whether it's true. Uh, one uh, part of that is 
that he says that the premier's chief of staff, Premier Ford's chief of staff, Dean French, was, uh, he was told, going to be at an interview that he was heading to with the selection committee, and then all of a sudden he wasn't at it. So the Premier Ford uh, has claimed that no cabinet staff uh, in his office claimed no one involved in cabinet w- was involved at all in the selection committee. As you, you, you heard off the top, you played the clip of him saying mm-hmm. uh, that I told him I don't want to be involved in this at all. Well, if he wasn't involved, but his chief of staff was, then that's him. I mean, that's, that's your, as a minister, your, your staff serves at your pleasure. So when they act, they're acting on behalf of you. And um, it sounds like Dean Sta- French might have actually been involved in the selection committee uh, uh, and some of the interviews, we'll see whether more comes out about that, and it needs to be investigated. And uh, as well, the other useful information is uh, from this complaint is the claim that uh, Doug Ford, Dean French, had actually spoken to uh, someone in the RCM in the uh, OPP and ordered a new vehicle for him, uh, according to the premier's specifications for uh, traveling, and that the changes to the vehicle be kept off the books. Well, that's not legal. So um, if that needs to be investigated as well, whether it's just a claim by someone who was also applying for the job and is sour grapes, or whether it is true. And uh, the uh, Brad Blair says it wasn't me that, it, that this request was filed with. It was someone else in the OPP. So presumably that other person will be able to clear it up. And uh, hopefully the request was made in writing so that it wasn't it doesn't turn into a he said she said situation because those are always difficult for investigators to determine where the truth really lies. Uh, do you think that the premier overrode that the anonymous decision then? The decision to to hire um, uh, uh, Travener. Um, well, we know he took part in the final approval, and it needs to be investigated whether he or someone acting on his behalf tried to influence the selection committee process at all, <clears throat> or the uh, changing of the the qualifications for the job in the job posting. And if he did, then he's intervened in choosing the top cop in the province. And that's a very serious violation, uh, especially when it's intervening to uh, get his close friend to, to be the one awarded the job. And the penalty for that, Democracy Watch's position is, is that he should lose his seat. That's what should be recommended by the Integrity Commissioner. And the Integrity Commissioner can't impose that penalty, but can recommend it. And then, unfortunately, it goes back to the legislature to decide whether uh, the Premier would suffer that penalty if he did intervene in this way. And the legislature, of course, has a majority of conservatives, and it'll be a big question whether they'll protect Doug Ford, if that is the situation, or whether they will actually uphold the Integrity Commissioner's recommendation that he loses his seat. You know, we're talking about... Isn't that kind of jumping to conclusions? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just saying if, yeah. if that was the situation, yeah. that's the way the process goes. Mm-hmm. And the Integrity Commissioner should be the one who decides the penalty not other politicians. You're discussing a penalty, though, and we haven't even had an investigation at this point. It's, no, it's I'm, just, just ta- I'm talking yeah. about how the process goes. Right, right. And, and it's a bad process in that politicians judge another politician. And they make decisions, of course, based on partisanship, not based on rules and evidence. And it's just a bad uh, system that's in place. And uh, we'll see what the investigation shows. Uh, but there's a lot of questions, of course. Why would you ever change a job description two days after you've posted it when you have no idea how many applicants you have? Uh, how close a friend is Travener to the Ford family? 
Avenir is like what? What, uh, very, what, what is close. the release? They, they travel on trips together. Um, long history. He's 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 uh, from the same area, Etobicoke area. Has been there 50 years. They they know each other very well. He is a close friend, according to even the premier. Mm. Uh, I, I'm just I'm playing devil's advocate here. I mean, you know, the Ford family, uh, like any family like this, would have lots of friends, lots of acquaintances, pretty much everywhere, would they not? Which is why you have to have a rule that says you can't take part in decisions yeah. when you could further your own interests or your friends' interests. And if you don't have that rule. You know, the, the Ford government says we're government for the people. Well, if you don't have that rule in place and strictly and strongly enforced, it becomes government for his people. Mm-hmm. And if you're one of his people, lucky you. If you're not one of his people, unlucky you, because the government is going to be all making decisions for his people, not for the people. And that's why that rule is there. It's fundamental to democratic good governments. We do not have a democracy, according to every international body that's ever looked at this, the Supreme Court of Canada, any commentator, any scholar, any academic, anyone who's ever looked at democratic good governance, what's the number one thing you need? A rule that says you have to serve the public interest and you cannot be making decisions to help your own or your family's or your friend's private interests. It's fundamental. And if he, that's why I say it's such a serious violation for him to intervene and uh, give this, if he did, uh, do this for him to intervene and give this job to a friend of his, especially when it's the job of the top cop of the province who enforces laws that apply to the premier and his cabinet and his staff and top government officials. So what if he didn't? What if uh, there's an investigation and all this goes through and it proves that he really didn't have anything to do with it? Still a violation for him to be there at the final meeting. Mm-hmm. But if it can be shown that the selection committee process was merit-based and independent from the premier. Then they came up with the recommendation on their own, and it just happened to end up being the close friend of the premier. The premier shouldn't have been there at the final approval meeting, but it would uh, shield him from um, any more serious violation because it would have been an independent process that produced this guy as the top candidate. Does Doug Ford's behavior open himself up to this sort of um, suspicion? Uh, well, <clears throat> we have had um, the situation where uh, they're unnamed, so it's always difficult to know, but unnamed sources who are conservative staff people uh, with, this, with the Ford government saying that his chief of staff called them and, and told them to call the police and make sure there were arrests the first day that pot was legalized uh, uh, and that the pot shops were closed down uh, and that there would be arrests on the TV uh, news by noon that day. That's not proper. Um, you, the, no one in the political side of government is supposed to be calling the police and telling them to arrest people uh, or investigate people. They're supposed to make those decisions um, by themselves and independently of any political influence. Uh, so we have that one report. And then the premier has also appointed other uh, conservatives to uh, top positions. Um, You know, what we do in our system is you're allowed to hire anyone you want other than your own family as your staff, as a a cabinet minister. The public pays for those people, Mm -hmm. but cabinet ministers obviously want someone who's very loyal to them and on their side. And so we say, okay, for that, those positions alone as a cabinet minister, 
or as a premier or prime minister, you can choose the people. Okay, and you want to choose someone who doesn't know how to do the job, but and because they're a friend of yours, you can do that um, with that position only. And all other positions, especially positions of enforcing laws like judges and police and ethics watchdogs and all the other commissioners that watch over uh, the cabinet and, and uh, politicians and government officials on ethics and transparency and things like that, those positions you have to use an independent process to ensure that you have people who know how to do the job and who would not be lapdogs. And that's why it's such a serious issue that did he intervene to ensure his close friend got the job as the top cop in the province? That's a very, very serious violation if he did. Duff Conacher has been with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at University of Ottawa. Duff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Obviously, you've known of the story of the Huawei CFO, which was who was detained in Vancouver, a flight from uh, between China and Mexico, and uh, ha- has been held uh, right up until a bail he- hearing yesterday, in which she was released. However, we have still heard very little in regard to. Uh, the former diplomat, Canadian diplomat uh, in China who has been detained, Michael Kovrig. Uh, nothing on his release or uh, any of that nature uh, at this point either. Here's what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say. We are, of course, uh, seized with the case of the Canadian detained in China. We are engaging with Chinese officials. Uh, we have uh, engaged uh, with consular support to his family. Uh, this is obviously uh, an issue that we are taking very seriously and is ongoing. All right, let's bring in Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow, Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, Executive Fellow, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and with us now. Hugh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, good morning, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on the Huawei CFO being released and the uh, bail conditions behind that? Well, I was personally uh, pleased to see that she was released. I mean, in, uh, it was really a common sense, natural justice decision. Um, there are a number of conditions, of course, imposed on her, but uh, bail under these sort of circumstances is kind of the default. Um, she clearly has no difficulty in putting up the financial wherewithal. There were a number of issues the judge had to make sure that the people putting surety were, in fact, Canadian residents, and a number of people in the community came forward to do that. So uh, that stage is over. Uh, the next court hearing will be in February, so at least uh, she'll be able to pass her time comfortably. The same, unfortunately, which cannot be said of the uh, detained Canadian in China, who I fear is going to spend uh, uh, some difficult time for the next uh, next period ahead. Uh, getting back to the CFO, uh, from what we understand, arrested during a stopover, um, if this person has two homes in Vancouver, why would they have to arrest her uh, on a stopover? Why just not go up and knock on the door? Does she spend time in these residents? Well, she's normally resident in Shenzhen, is my understanding. And uh, from what I uh, understand, she has both Chinese and Hong Kong passports. So she owns property in Vancouver. At one point, a few years ago, she spent time in, in Vancouver. I gather she was doing a, a, a master's degree or something. Uh, in uh, uh, in the Vancouver area, but she doesn't live there now. She spends apparently a couple of weeks a year, so she owns property, but she's not a resident. So that therefore not uh, would not have the ability to go up and, and have arrested her at a residence. Therefore, did it on a stopover. 
That's right. Um, I I don't know when the last time was that she spent time in Vancouver, whether it was uh, last year or a couple of years ago. But basically, uh, it appears the warrant was issued in August, and the U.S. authorities were looking for an opportunity to apprehend her. And somehow they must have known that she was passing through Vancouver. That presented a target of opportunity, and they moved on it. Uh, getting back to Michael Kovrig, uh, obviously uh, she has been released. Why is there no more information on him, and why not the same? Well, it's pretty opaque what's going on in China. Um, as, as a number of people have said, it's certainly not a coincidence that China has moved now to uh, uh, arrest, apparently, and incarcerate a Canadian citizen. And the latest news that came out was that he's being charged under national security laws, which is really a cause for concern because... As, as non-transparent as Chinese uh, court procedures and law is, it's even worse when it comes to national security, where there's no guarantees of an open trial, access to lawyers, and so forth. There's not a lot of information available, but it certainly appears that this is a tit-for-tat move by the Chinese, uh, as has happened in the past, and uh, it's now going to be... Uh, apparently difficult to secure his release. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Clearly the Canadian government is on the case, seeking access and so on. Um, but from my personal point of view, it's not looking good for the time being. So why are we releasing someone and they are not, if this is tit for tat? I mean, um, I understand they're two different systems, two different cultures and such, but isn't that... I mean, it appears that this person was detained because the CFO was. If the CFO is released, why not the Canadian? Well, as you know, our system doesn't work that way. I mean, the uh, the Hmong case has been dealt with strictly in accordance with procedures. She was arrested on the basis of a warrant from the United States. She was given uh, due process in court with a lawyer, etc. She's now released on bail. Um, there was a separate case that's taken place in China. We can suppose that there's a, there's a connection in the minds of the Chinese. Um, they haven't explicitly said so, but that is the way that they operate. But, I mean, to fall into that trap, to sort of say, well, tit for tat, then you're really playing their game. Um, uh, Canadians are, uh, uh, some are fearing Canadians are looking bad, getting caught in the U.S.'s dirty work. On the other hand, when China does not does not reciprocate in good faith the way Canadians do because their laws are more liberal. How does that make the Chinese look? Well, I think what is uh, what what is somewhat unusual here is that this is essentially a U.S.-China issue, right? The warrant was issued by the U.S. Canada was acting in accordance with the extradition treaty. We basically had no recourse but to follow through, and of course there will be an extradition hearing and. Maybe the uh, U.S. evidence won't, uh, won't, won't, won't justify ex- extradition. But, um, you know, the, uh, the, the process has, has, to be, has to be followed through, and that's basically what's happened. Yeah, I understand that completely. But, again, we have a high-profile scenario and, and resistance in some ways to what the Canadian government has done, even though bound by international law and such. And, uh, you know, justice has been served, as many have said, and that this person has been granted bail. Um, again, how do you have a tit-for-tat when one's tatting and the other one's not titting, for lack of a better word? Well, I think what I would like to see, and, and, and I think what 
people should focus on, as I mentioned, this is a U.S.-China dispute. It's interesting that China has, has brought down the, uh, the hammer on Canada. It's done very little with regard to the United States other than calling the American ambassador. Uh, there is uh, an obvious, obvious reason for this. This is the U.S.-China trade dispute and the negotiations that are going on. So they're trying to lean on the guy that's caught in the middle, which is us, without actually addressing the, the, the source of the problem. And, of course, this is made even more complicated by Mr. Trump's musings yesterday that he might interve- intervene with the, uh, the Ministry of Justice and uh, if it would help settle the U.S.-China trade war, well, he'd, get, he'd call off the dogs. I don't actually think he has the ability to do that but frankly it's an outrageous statement because in effect what the what the president is saying is that mrs Wong is being held as a pawn in a u.s china trade war yep. rather than being part of a criminal case launched by the department of justice so to mix those two by the americans is sending completely the wrong signals to the Chinese who will get the message, well, you know, if that's what it's all about, we'll just up the, up the ante and have all this linkage and so on. And uh, really what needs to happen is that these things need to be kept on separate tracks. So did Donald Trump know that, this was, that the CFO was, was going to be arrested while he was doing trade deals with China? Was he, would, would he have been even aware of that? Well, I mean, who because knows? Because it sounds now like he was, or was he? Well, at the time, she was arrested at about the time that he was meeting with Xi Jinping. Right. Uh, I doubt, frankly, that something of that nature, it's not that high profile, would have been brought to his attention. We have no indication that it was. Certainly, he's aware of it now. And uh, it was in the comment, it was in the, uh, the context of an interview with Reuters yesterday about the larger uh, China-U.S. trade issue that he made those comments. So moving forward, is there no pressure on China to at least reciprocate what Canada has done with the CFO? You mean uh, to to release uh, Mr. Korvig? Is that or or at least even give us any information on him whatsoever, which is certainly what we did and not what they're doing at all. Well, I would hope so. I mean, uh, we're told, you know, the government, um, and Mr. Trudeau and others have said that they... Uh, they're on it. They're pursuing it. I would expect that the embassy will be insisting that they be given access to Mr. Korvig. Uh, the organization that he works for has been trying to get more information. So at this stage, uh, I think we have to wait and see what happens. Um, the, the foreign ministry apparently has denied that they know about this, but he was picked up by the Ministry of Public Security. So uh, clearly, clearly there was a direction from somewhere in the Chinese government to take action on this. I think we'll see a bit more in the next couple of days. The uh, information will start to leak out. Hopefully, uh, we will get to the root of this. They'll be, uh, the, the embassy will be given consular access to Mr. Korvig, and uh, we'll get some idea of what the charges are. Uh, what do we know about where he is, and has anybody been in contact with him? What do we know about his whereabouts? All I, all I, under, all I know is that he was picked up in Beijing. I have no idea where he is. I doubt if anybody does at this moment. He could be, uh, he could be in some sort of non, um, uh, non-police um, uh, detention in a, in a hotel or something. That's, uh, if, if we look back at previous cases, the case of the, uh, of the Garretts, for example, Kevin and Julia Garrett, who were arrested in 2014 under similar sort of circumstances, much of their detention was in sort of off-site uh, uh, facilities and so on although consular access was granted in that case, and eventually, of course, they were released, which I certainly hope will be the case with Mr. Korvig. Uh, are, are we treating, did we treat the CFO better, better than they are treating Mr. Kovrig? Absolutely. So far, 
Uh, and I, I mean, I would expect that continue to be the case. She was given every facility under uh, un- under Canadian law. Now she was kept in lockup for ten days. Um, I assume under. Yeah, but can you imagine if all of a sudden the the CFO, uh, which is the daughter of the founder of Huawei, uh, was detained, and then there was no information as to where she was or how she was, where she was being held, or what she was being charged with? I mean, we've been incredibly open on, ab- about this, and I know there. Are a completely different culture than what we are. That being said, uh, taking it one step farther, is that the answer here? Well, I agree with you. The uh, the difference between the two is is striking. It's uh, uh, I mean, all you have to. So, do how is- can the Chinese complain about how we're treating the CFO when they don't even know where the heck this person is? Very good point. I mean, they claim that her human rights were violated. Well, what human rights? Exactly. She, she was given a trial. There were demonstrators outside the courthouse. It seems to be that there's more. In the press. It seems to me there's more sympathy for the CFO than there is for Michael Kovrig. Um. Well, I don't know who 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 was giving you that information, but uh, I, 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 I'm, frankly, I'm sympathetic to both of them to make sure that they get the uh, kind of uh, support that they need. But certainly, right now, the focus should be on Mr. Kovrig. What can the Canadian government do? Uh, is there any help that the Americans can do? How, how are what's their position on this? That a Canadian's been held because we did our job in in, in doing what we had to do with the CFO. Well, you know, ultimately, the solution to this, if in fact there is linkage, does, does reside in the United States. I mean, the Department of Justice will bring its case forward. I suppose uh, that they could withdraw the case at some point. I mean, at the end of the day, one of two things is going to happen. Either she's going to be extradited to the United States, in which case it becomes much more of a U.S.-China issue, or she won't be, and she'll go back to China. That could take some time. Sometime after that, I suspect, Mr. Kovrig, if he's not released very quickly... Uh, there will be this kind of limbo period where it'll be very difficult to get information. He'll be held for quite some time in probably not very pleasant circumstances. And at some point, the Chinese will quote-unquote reward us by dropping charges and kicking him out of China. Uh, I mean, that, uh, the, the objective should be to make that happen much sooner rather than later because uh, it's extremely unfair to have him as the sort of meat in the sandwich here. Uh, Obviously, Trump was alluding to using the CFO as leverage. Will Donald Trump use Michael Kovrig as leverage? Um, I'm not sure that Mr. Trump has the ability to use Ms. Mung as leverage, but that's certainly the signal that he sent. Um, however, and I mean, uh, I don't think the Canadian government accepts that there's, a, that there's linkage, that this is a political case. I mean, the position is being of the U.S. government that this is a legal case. But if... If uh, some kind of a deal is struck that uh, the U.S. drops charges against Ms. Mung, there had better be a quid pro quo that Canada and, and Canadian citizens are indemnified in this, and Mr. Kovrig walks free very, very quickly. How big, how does this change the discussion, how does this change the relationship both between Canada and China and the U.S. and China? Well, it, 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 the U.S. has made... Canada-China relations particularly difficult through the poison pill clause in the U.S. Uh, right. MCA or the new NAFTA. So that's the first thing to sort of put Canada on the back foot. Um, I, I, I think the position of the U.S. government is that they're taking on China and they want the allies to fall in line. I'm sure it's not lost on the fact uh, on, on the U.S. that they've been putting all these uh, tariffs on Chinese products so the Chinese have reciprocated and therefore that makes U.S. products less attractive. So where are the Chinese going to get uh, supplies in the areas that uh, have been blocked? 
So, for example, they're buying soybeans from, uh, from Brazil. They are buying lobster from uh, Nova Scotia and so on. So, in effect, that helps them fight back and deal with some of the, uh, the U.S. pressure. I think the U.S. pressure would like everybody to line up and be good soldiers and, 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 and follow their rules. That's not how world trade works, but certainly they're leaning on their allies, including Canada, where they have a lot of leverage because of the, the uh, intensity of our bilateral relationship, to... Uh, to fall in line, and that's and uh, I don't see the Hmong case as specifically being part of that pressure, but certainly it's added to the uh, squeeze that Canada has found itself in. Huawei in Canada, not in the U.S. Uh, they say for security reasons. In our mad dash to get a piece of the the Chinese golden goose, have we forgot about security? Have we forgot about this is the type of country that we're dealing with? We take one of theirs, we give them due process. They take one of ours, we don't hear anything. Uh, what China is doing is certainly not doing Huawei any favors. Uh, as you point out, the U.S. has uh, has blocked Huawei from bidding on U.S. government contracts and is leaning on U.S. private companies not to use Huawei equipment. Huawei equipment is used in this country, and uh, to date, the Canadian government has not made the decision to ban Huawei from its 5G technology. Um, so the question is, Are we? Does, does the U.S. know something that we don't know? Are we being blind in terms of security? Well, this is being evaluated by the experts, by the communication security establishment and so forth, and I think we need a, a made-in-Canada solution. I don't know the details, but, I mean, it could be that, uh, that Huawei could be given access except to certain parts of the network. Certainly, it's acted as a very responsible com- company in this country. It's invested in a lot of R&D, but it is a Chinese company, a Chinese private company, but whether it's a Chinese private company or a state-owned enterprise, at the end of the day, it comes under the thumb of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, and that needs to be kept in mind. You said uh, already the place, you talked about the place that Huawei already has in Canadian technology. Can Canada use that leverage to free Kovrig? Well, possibly, but I think we have to be careful with these sorts of linkages. But my point is that by the Chinese, by playing hardball, and very crude hardball on this case, have certainly not helped Huawei's case. Huawei itself has kept a pretty uh, low profile. Their statements have been non-controversial. They've said they have confidence in the, you know, the legal process in Canada, the United States, and so forth. Um, so they've, they've played it calmly. Uh, the Chinese government has not. Now, it could be a case of good cop, bad cop. I don't know. But certainly this will be, uh, this, you know, this could possibly be a further factor that tips the decision away from Huawei in Canada. Will Canadians be turned off Huawei because of all of this? Will it question businesses from China? Well, I think most Canadians have not really heard of Huawei. It's not a big seller of handsets in this country. It's more a network provider like Nortel was and so forth. And in fact, Huawei bought a lot of the Nortel technology after Nortel went belly up. Although they are pretty heavy ho- uh, advertisers on Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. I guess I'm not a, enough of a hockey fan. But, uh, okay, so, uh, uh, you know, what will be the attitude of the average Canadian toward Huawei? Uh, I think the average Canadian, when they're coming to buy a handset or whatever, they're going to look at price, they're going to look at quality. But uh, the, col- the color of the media coverage is definitely going to influence people. And so far, the coverage has been pretty negative. And then as China continues these sort of roughhouse tactics, 
but uh, the coverage is clearly not going to get better. Hugh Stevens has been with us, a distinguished fellow, Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, University of Calgary fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Hugh, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about today in regard to what is happening uh, south of the border. Uh, yesterday, Trump and uh, Pelosi and Schumer got at it, and uh, it wasn't pretty. And as well, Michael Cohen, ex-Trump lawyer, heading to prison. He's uh, he's sentenced to three years. A judge has sentenced uh, Michael Cohen, uh, Donald Trump's uh, former personal uh, attorney, uh, to a total of three years in prison Wednesday over hush money payments to two women during the 26th election campaign and for lying to co- uh, Congress. And we know the story there. All right, let's bring in Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Michael, I, I just want to ask you off the top, in regard to the Michael Cohen scenario, what does this, the fact that he's now been sentenced to three years, we know the story, there's nothing new there, how how does the president react to something like that? You know, we, we saw him go from being, you know, very a big fan of uh, Mr. Cohn's to trashing him as he does to everyone else. So I think we'll just see more of that. That he'll talk about this, you know, Yahoo. Uh, we'll see more tweets like if you need to hire a good lawyer, don't hire Michael Cohn. Uh, we'll see more bluster from the president. But uh, what, what, is, does this mean that the noose is um, getting a little bit tighter around Mr. Trump's neck? Uh, probably. How can he separate himself from the whole Cohen story? Look, I mean, the the only way he can do it is the way he does this with so many things is that Mr. Trump's very good at creating a uh, false narrative and an alternate uh, alternative reality. You know, the, we've heard about the alternative facts, but he's able to tell a story that those who like him and they like him a lot are willing to believe. And uh, he'll continue to do this, uh, be it on the uh, Mueller investigation, be it on, um, you know, his net worth, his tax returns. He does this over and over again. and He's very good at it. All right, it was Trump versus Pelosi and Schumer uh, yesterday. We're going to play you a clip of that. Here it is. Yes, if we don't get what we want one way or the other, whether it's through you, through a military, through anything you want to call, I will shut down the government. Okay, absolutely. And I am proud, and I'll tell you what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck. All right, where does that leave the uh, discussion (laughs) moving forward, Michael? So let's rewind to uh, shortly after Mr. Trump uh, was inaugurated uh, as president, and he invited, as he called them, uh, Chuck and Nancy over to the White House for Chinese (laughs) food. Uh, And he got along swimmingly well with them because he needed to show Democrats and Republicans in Congress at that point that he was willing to work with them. Obviously, he never wanted to, and that uh, gambit worked. But So yesterday was much less friendly than that first uh, Chinese food uh, summit uh, nearly two years ago. But uh, the Nancy Pelosi becoming Speaker of the House of Representatives, again, is the best political gift that Donald Trump could ever have received. He'll still maintain control over the Senate, and that will be good for uh, confirmations of uh, cabinet officials and, more importantly, for uh, the conservative-based judges. Uh, But having the House of Representatives to play politics with will be very good for him. And shutting down the government on uh, the wall, for example, would be, I think, very good for Donald Trump. Uh, What about asking uh, these two for the $5 million that America wasn't supposed to pay? It was supposed to be Mexico that was paying. Well, it's going to be Mexico and Canada now, is what I understand, (laughs) for the new uh, trade deal. So, look... uh, 
Trump, it was always a pipe dream that Mexico will pay for the wall. And Trumpies won't care who builds the wall. And those who want the wall won't care who builds the wall. Obviously, you know, this uh, crack dream of Mexico paying for it would be ideal. They just want the wall. So what about the body language at this uh, meeting? This seems as if uh, it, it was almost a setup in the sense that, you know, there's, there's the president uh, beating on Chuck and Nancy, as you say. What about the optics? What about the body language? Uh, there's a great shot uh, in the press today of, of, of uh, Donald Trump leaning into Schumer, and he's just beat red face, and Schumer's just looking straight down at his shoes. What do you what do you get from this? From this, look, I think that uh, people are finally starting to realize. You know, if you look at the first meetings uh, that people have with him, um, Elizabeth May and Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau, they went in expecting a normal meeting, and that's not what they got. So, you, you, to meet with Donald Trump, you need to rehearse because it is theater; it's show business. And you know, uh, as long into the politics is show business for ugly people. And with Donald Trump, it's show business for somebody who actually comes from the world of show business. So he will use theatrics to upstage you, to make you look smaller or weaker or subservient to him. So you, you better you better prepare. Uh, and that's what that really looked like. I mean, mm-hmm. that was Donald exactly. Trump in total command of this game, wasn't it? Exactly. He? And it's, it's shocking that, uh, uh, you know, Schumer wouldn't have. Schumer, like, these are people who've operated in the same world for a very long time. You know, Chuck Schumer is a former congressman from New York City, and he's now senator for New York State, but based in New York City. His political base is New York City. Donald Trump's financial base, his company, his life is New York City. Uh, so these are guys who would have known each other for decades and known of each other for even longer, and they operate in, in both the same world at home and in Washington, so that, that Chuck Schumer wouldn't have had that on his preparation is, is surprising. Does the wall matter that much to the average American? Uh, what, how does the average American, um, h- how do they digest that, that the president will close down the government or let the government shut down in order to get the wall? You see, and I think you're approaching it uh, from the wrong vantage because it's going to be that the Congress is forcing the president to shut down the government. Because right. it's the Congress that shuts down the government. And if you look at traditionally, it's the Congress that wears the blame for shutting down a government. Mm. Uh, so that's, I think, where actually the blame, the blame will. Will, will land on this. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz, when he led the Tea Party wing of the Republican Senate uh, caucus to shut down the government uh, with Obama, Ted Cruz and, and the Republicans of the Senate wore that uh, a bit. If you look back when it was, you know, Gingrich shutting down the government with Bill Clinton, the Republicans of the Congress wore that. So I, I think uh, Typically speaking, the uh, congressional side will be more harmed by closing the government uh, than would the president be. And on this policy matter, for his base, there are a few issues that are more important than the border and immigration. So did Donald Trump win this encounter yesterday between these two? I think he did because, again, you got to remember uh, there's two audiences, and mm-hmm. Donald Trump only cares about one. So he's continuing to win amongst those who uh, he needs to win with, and that's what success is for him. Do these theatrics uh, confirm that it is getting a little hotter in in Donald Trump's world? Uh, no, because we've you know it, it should be a confirmation of that, but this is status quo from the guy. 
Yeah, it's what we've seen before, I guess. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, where does this encounter go? Where does this discussion go? What happens when the government shuts down? Look, I think that we're a bit away from the government shutting down, and I think uh, uh, the you know Nancy Pelosi is going to be going back to Capitol Hill, and she's not even speaker yet. Remember that won't happen until the new year, uh, and uh, Chuck Schumer will remain in the minority there. Uh, but um, you're going to see the uh, you're going to see the Democrats in the House of Representatives. Uh, I think exercising caution at first and not uh, not being tricked into doing anything politically uh, silly. You know, that's a valid point, too, Michael, is that uh, each one has to make sure they don't react to the other's goading almost. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's it's a game of chicken. You know, there's a lot of things in life that are games of chicken, uh, be it uh, defamation lawsuits and politics, you know, dealing with Donald Trump, trade negotiations is a game of chicken. Who's going to blink first? And if the Democrats look at how Donald Trump's operated over the last couple of years, he's not going to blink, but they ought to not blink either. Uh, is all of this, meaning the Pelosi, Chuck and Nancy thing from yesterday, is this a distraction to take us away from the Cohen case in sentencing? You know, absolutely. It, it very well could be. Donald Trump has been very, very effective at that. Uh, you know, bad story throw to spelling errors. It was funny watching uh, some cable news. And uh, they're, you know, once again, just like with Kafivi two a year ago or whatever, <laughs> they're focusing on the schmocking gun. Like, like yeah. there's a real story here, uh, cable news broadcasters, but you're talking about a typo. Uh, interesting point. Uh, what about Mike Pence in that encounter yesterday? He, he, he just kind of sat there through the whole thing. You got to wonder what's going on in Mike Pence's uh, mind. If he's just, you know, you know, he's not a typical presidency and it's certainly because I'm not a typical vice presidency. Uh, does he think that it's just a matter of time until he Gerald Ford's his way into the White House? Perhaps seems unlikely to me. Um, but uh, there's got to be a lot of head shaking uh, going on uh, at the vice president's residence. Uh, is he better just to keep quiet in situations like this? Uh, yeah, the vice president uh, has a uh, obligation to be loyal, uh, so he shouldn't be uh, speaking out against his administration. But uh, there's no obligation to support the theatrics and uh, nuttiness. Michael Diamond has been with his conservative political pundit talking about Donald Trump and uh, his encounter with uh, Pelosi and Schumer yesterday. And, of course, uh, his lawyer, Michael Cohen, being sentenced to three years in prison. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.